0: ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm your host, Andrew McDermott. Today I'm back with historian of science Michael Keyes, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture and author of the book Unbelievable, Seven Myths About the History and Future of Science and Religion. Keyes serves as lecturer in the History and Philosophy of Science at Biola University, and on the board of directors at Ratio Christi an alliance of apologetics clubs on college campuses. Mike, thanks for your time. Welcome back.
1: It's good to be back in conversation with you again, Andrew.
0: Well, you've written, as I said in part 1, an important new essay that was recently published in the journal Religions, and it's called Christianity Cultivated Science With and Without Methodological Naturalism. Now, the the piece is 33 pages. You're very careful and very thorough, in your approach to all this and you detail the history of science the history of methodological naturalism and how judeo-christian tradition and thought influenced both and i found it just fascinating so let's continue to unpack some of the essay's key insights now in part one we discussed your review of the history of methodological naturalism and the role of judeo-christian tradition in the history of science you gave us examples specific people that moved that process along And that's all very interesting. Now, in the second half of your essay, you discuss pioneering philosopher of science, William Huell. How did his view of science and design contrast to his contemporary, Charles Darwin?
1: Yes, Charles Darwin was his slightly younger contemporary, and Darwin really looked up to Huell as a statesman of science and uh, as a philosopher who philosophized specifically about uh, natural science, and thus one of the uh, pioneers of the two major fields that I study, which is the philosophy of science after my primary field of history of science, Huell also studied the history of science, and, and he integrated the two, which is what my essay is all about, as integration of history and philosophy of science. So uh, Steve Meyer and I both really look up to William Huell because he was trained very much like Steve and I are. Well, getting to the history, Huell argued that certain arrangements of organismal parts point to a designer, that that these couldn't have been assembled by an unguided process, couldn't have been assembled by chance, or even by uh, the necessity of certain combinations of natural laws, or the combination of chance and laws, that, that this just is not the kind of thing that in our routine experience happens. Now, he did say that Routinely, crystals spontaneously do form, do form, but that's due to straightforward natural laws that give a very repetitive outcome of a certain uh, repetitive angles. That, and you've got a beautiful outcome, but, but it's not something like life where you are able to have a succession of generations and reproduction and a whole lot of other things that go into life that distinguish life from non-living things like crystals. And this distinction has actually been picked up on by intelligent design theorists in the last 50 years. Uh, and some of our listeners will probably, it sounds like, hey, that sounds familiar, right? <laughs> the difference between crystallization and how living beings uh, operate and how they reproduce and how they must have originated. So Huell was on to this sort of thing and argued that it is within the legitimate domain of the science of biology to study the origin of these new kinds of life that are radically different, and he understood that there is some degree of change that is capable, uh, that nature is capable of producing in life, but that that the major discontinuities, uh, we have no good reason to think that these can be the product of some kind of built-in law of nature or just uh, the chance rolling of the dice of nature. And so... Hewell clearly articulated and promoted the study of biological origins without methodological naturalism or, positively, guided by the more open-minded approach of methodological pluralism, a term that I invented to describe what Huell was arguing for, but just didn't uh, have a term for. He, he, he had a term for a lot of other things. He, he helped coin a whole bunch of different scientific terms that Michael Faraday and many other scientists that he was networking with were able to use, but he, he didn't coin this one, so I came up with it for him. Okay. But he definitely had the idea and argued for it rigorously. Darwin, by sharp contrast, as we all know, if you've been listening to ID the Future... Darwin argued that the only way to legitimately do the science of biological origins is by strictly limiting yourself to methodological naturalism. And even though his early editions of The Origin of Species didn't explicitly say that, it it, it was kind of implicitly in there, and it was later editions of The Origin that actually, without using the term methodological naturalism, was basically claiming if you're not doing it this way, you're not doing science at all and became very, uh, how should I say, dogmatic about it, it ain't science until it's <laughs> MN, methodological naturalism kind of science, if it's in, in in the area of origins. So even though they were on very good personal terms and actually walked together to various meetings and chatted with each other and had great uh, respect for each other, when Darwin's theories came out, Huell very much attacked it, not Darwin personally, but the ideas that Darwin came up with, because they just didn't hold up to scrutiny.
0: Now, I was struck by this comment of Huell's. She, meaning geology, says nothing, but she points upwards. What did he mean by that?
1: Well, he was saying regarding she, geology, a discipline personified as a woman, that when you see the sudden appearance of new plants and animals as we do see in the geological record. Geology itself is not focused on the study of life, but on the study of earth. But fossils, as I mentioned in the previous episode, are like nature's coins. Uh, Like an archeologist would find a Roman coin of of a particular type and be able to specify at what point in history that was deposited there. And in a similar way, fossils, can be used to indicate what part of the succession of geological formations, which represent periods of geological time, which one we're looking at in this particular instance as we're doing field work. So geology itself, however, is not devoted to the study of life. Life in its dead fossilized form is just one of many indicators that help reconstruct the history of the non-living geological strata. But when you see the sudden appearance in the geological strata, as you do, without evidence of precursors, of transitions, it does point upwards. Now, he couched this as something beyond geology, but it wasn't entirely beyond science. Some people who quote this passage saying that she refers to nature, that nature says nothing. Well, nature does say something here, and particularly when you're studying the biological origin science, you, you see how living organisms have hierarchically arranged parts that are assembled by some sort of instructions. Genetics really wasn't known, much of that was known at this time, but still biologists knew that there was some way that life's structures originate and then they could contrast uh, natural origins or natural causes for the origin of life versus and the kinds of basic kinds of life, with the possibility of intelligent agency having had a role in new life forms appearing on the planet. So that is not beyond science. And Huell, in other passages that are less cryptic than this one, makes it very clear that biological origin science should be done in an open minded manner following methodological pluralism, not the narrow dogmatic approach of methodological naturalism that his younger contemporary particularly championed in the later editions of the origin of species yeah so this passage has been misinterpreted by a number of fellow historians of science and i i detail this how they got it wrong and how my analysis tells the the true story here
0: yeah really appreciate that well Huell makes the interesting point that the science of biology perhaps more than other sciences can speak to purposeful design and design inferences because through the study of disease, we can understand what biological systems are designed to do under normal conditions. As an example, he said, gravity never acts in a diseased manner. Is this a nice way to, to, to see how biology is different here? Do you agree with him on this point?
1: Oh, I think it's quite insightful. Because you have in biology a certain sort of biological ought or intentionality here of. Of their things ought to produce be developed in a particular way, guided by the genetic information. Of course, they knew little about genetics at this time, but there was some some ways in which, you know, if, if everything goes right, the next generation will have all, full function. But sometimes things go wrong, and you have what we now call mutations, where you may have a genetic defect in, in the offspring, or you might have a genetic defect that predisposes you to particular sorts of diseases in certain sorts of tissues. And Huell actually quoted a French pathologist and anatomist who kind of made clear that there's certain sorts of diseases that are characteristic of certain sorts of tissues and that this is when, when the biology doesn't do what it's supposed to do, it misfires, <laughs> whereas gravity just does what it does, right? There's no misfiring. So that seems to say that biology is the study of things that, well to quote Richard Dawkins, appear to be designed for a purpose and that sometimes mistakes or errors in the history of life can cause some of those purposes to not be realized and you have sterility or some partial dysfunction in an organism due to that. And so that's a very insightful way of distinguishing the study of life from the study of non-living systems, whether it be crystals, like I mentioned earlier in episode one, or gravity. And Huell was right on this, and, and he noted that the kind of design argument you can make in biology is different than in the physical sciences. Yeah, in the physical sciences, you can, and he did argue, that the natural laws that make a planet habitable and that make for the possibility of life, those had to be designed, but those are designed on a higher level, of, of the, or, or a deeper level, if you want, of natural laws themselves. But there's an additional layer of design that has to be invoked to explain living systems, because the natural world does not have within itself, according to Huell and the vast majority of of his own contemporaries, does not have within itself the ability to produce major kinds of biological change. Huell argued that there are natural limits to biological change, and that's not something that he just invented, but he was in network with many different scientists. He was sort of a statesman of science, as well as a philosopher of science, and and helped other scientists think through the implications of their own work. Uh, which is a lot of what dis- uh, some of our Discovery Fellows do, right? Is to th- is to carefully sift through uh, contemporary science and look at w- the bigger picture. What does this imply for origins and for its meaning and significance in the world? And uh, Huell is a great role model for this kind of very careful work and was highly regarded, even by Darwin himself, uh, even though they did disagree on biological origins.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting that uh, Charles Darwin himself doesn't explicitly advocate what we now know as modern methodological naturalism until Mr. Hewell had passed away, which is also um, interesting. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Uh, There was sort of this opportunism that Darwin seemed to enjoy. One was his misuse of a quote from Hewell when Hewell was still alive, that he used, at the, in fact, the very f- first words in The Origin of Species is Darwin quoting Huell in a way that makes him sound like Huell is advocating methodological nationalism, but he was really talking about the physical sciences, not biology, the very distinction I've been making and remaking in different words in this podcast and the previous one. So Darwin also, that, that sort of opportunism has actually been recognized by a fellow historian of science, uh, John Hedley Brook. And I picked up on that in my essay. But there's a second kind of opportunism that it just seems more than just coincidence that Darwin began to explicitly call, explicitly within the later editions of The Origin of Species, to say it's not science unless it's done by methodological naturalism, without using the term, but using the idea. And that was just after Huell died. Uh, And Huell was known as the greatest methodologist of science of that time. And so as soon as he was dead, Darwin apparently said, well, here's my chance. <laughs> so, yeah. another sort of opportunism. Uh, I, I've got circumstantial evidence for that. I can't prove that, but it it, it seems, the timing seems very curious, <laughs> I should say. Yeah.
0: It wasn't until the fourth edition that uh, Darwin explicitly started mm-hmm. pushing for the methodological naturalism we recognize today in science. Well, as Hewell was arguing um, design, In Living Systems, he felt the inference to purposeful design in the structure of animals was well-founded by not just him, but other uh, scientists in the field at the time. In fact, he quotes a few, or he references a few examples, Harvey's discovery of the circulation of the blood, Cuvier's restoration of extinct animals from fossil evidence, establishing the reality of extinctions, Uh, you know, he really had surveyed the evidence and thought that it came up on the side of design.
1: Right. And that's, uh, I recall another quote of Huell where he says the, the, you know, basically the vast majority of biologists or physiologists, they had various titles, think that there are natural limits to biological change. And then this points to intelligent agency. Now, Huell went even further than just intelligent agency. He thought that when it comes to the origin of life and major kinds of life, that this points to divine intelligent agency, which is interesting because in Steve Meyer's recent book, Return of the God Hypothesis, first he notes how you can argue for generic intelligent agency from multiple fields, but when it comes to the origin of the universe and and its fine-tuning and so on, um, that when you add to the science additional considerations from philosophical analysis you can uh, then narrow down the kind of intelligent cause and he thinks that you have a good case for a divine intelligent cause. And William Huell actually did the same kind of thing as uh, Steve Meyer. And so I think that, you know, this is a great example of where an earlier leading figure in science is doing something that today the majority of scientists would not look too kindly upon and would maybe even try to ostracize them as being anti-science. But you it's pretty hard to paint William Hewell as being anti-science, given the standards of science at the time. He was one of the leading lights in the entire world. So th- this is encouraging for, I think, the intelligent design movement.
0: Yeah, what an extraordinary character. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm curious, has anyone in the ID community written a book-length treatment or, or, or a major essay on Hewell's contributions?
1: No, but I have a book a project in, on, in my queue <laughs> on you. Okay. And we'll have to talk about that another time because I'm not ready to unveil that.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, well, just in case we want to learn more because he sounds like an awesome, awesome figure in all of this. Mm-hmm. Well, as we wrap up uh, our conversation, is there a healthy form of methodological naturalism for science? And why should scientists embrace methodological pluralism? What are the benefits there?
1: Well, historically, you do have evidence, as I mentioned in my essay, that medieval Christian intellectuals did formulate something like methodological naturalism that was good for science because it helped distinguish for practical purposes uh, the study of how nature routinely operates from the study of God, uh, the study of theology. And it also, on the one hand, it it had to do with this medieval university organization system that I mentioned earlier but it also had to do with repudiating simply popular mythology and opinion that natural effects that seemed unusual were direct miracles of god when when I, oftentimes you could explain them by natural causes certain certain things in the night sky or whatever that was just unusual so that was good for science to to you 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 should do your homework and make sure you first look for Well, kind of like Bill Dembski's explanatory filter. You look for chance and for necessity to see if those or a combination of the two can explain the event. And then after you've exhausted those resources, then you can reasonably infer design. And so there is a kind of methodological naturalism that is healthy for science when it's uh, and it it operates within uh, operation science. That is how things work. But if you try to then impose that on origin science, what you end up doing is you end up prejudicing the kind of conclusions you could even possibly draw before you even begin investigation and that's that's not an open-minded sort of inquiry that that scientists or any scholar should want to pursue so methodological pluralism is also referred to sometimes today as by the saying that you should follow the evidence where it leads to any kind of kind of cause regardless of what the, that kind of cause is you should be open to a plurality of different candidate causes as you infer the best explanation and so that is the the healthiest and most open-minded way to pursue origin science so that you can truly follow the evidence where it might lead.
0: Yeah. And I have down here my notes, you know, you I like the way you put it. The old school methodological naturalism that you talk about didn't challenge theology, but rather it ensured professional space for natural philosophers to love God with the exercise of their god-given cognitive abilities.
1: Exactly it wasn't an anti-god <laughs> enterprise i mean the the for for the most part these medieval university faculty were not just institutionally in a in a church supported institution but they were personally committed to the christian faith not all cases but in the majority of them uh, and so they thought of their study of nature as a way of glorifying god and and that of course, William Huell and many others thought of it this way, and uh, that's, that would be a sort of a personal motivation for doing science based on uh, a religious belief. You could say that's religiously motivated science, but in a non-pejorative meaning of they were motivated to glorify God by carefully using their reasoning faculties to infer what is the best explanation, whether it be a natural cause or an unnatural intelligent cause, something that's beyond just what chance and necessity can do. And that sort of careful parsing out of questions about nature um, is still legitimate science because it's trying to explain nature. Now, if you're trying to explain God, that's theology, right? Trying to understand God. But if you're trying to understand nature, there's plenty of historical precedent for someone to be religiously motivated, but to be open-minded about the sort of thing that he or she might discover and to let the evidence uh, speak for itself.
0: Right. Right. Well, uh, some amazing insights in this essay, and I hope listeners will will get a copy and uh, look it up and read it for themselves. Uh, it makes for an awesome read, and it will teach you quite a bit about the history of science and this boogeyman that we, we always point to, methodological naturalism. It's not just simply something we should dismiss out of hand. It's something that we can look for clarification in And uh, we can also bring in this idea of methodological pluralism and encourage that in our modern science today. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure. I hope you'll come back and join us again soon on ID the Future.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show today. You asked some very intriguing questions, and it actually got me to think about my future book project on this topic and uh, different uh, little loose ends I want to tie up. So thank you for that.
0: Oh, you're welcome. That's great. Well, we'll put a link to Dr. Keyes' essay in this episode's description, as well as part 1's, at idthefuture.com. And you can read about some of the most popular and pernicious myths about science and religion in Dr. Keyes' book, Unbelievable! Seven Myths About the History and Future of Science and Religion. So look that up as well. For now, and for ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks for listening.
1: Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.